Here's your extinction story for the week. Dragon bones piled by the hundreds in caves all over Europe. Hello and welcome to Making a Monster Extinction, the stories of extinct animals retold as Dungeons and Dragons monsters. I'm Lucas Zellers, I'm your host, and I'm gathering these stories into a bestiary called Book of Extinction, coming to Kickstarter in November of 2021. This episode might be a little bit different than what you're used to. Making a Monster is the surprising history behind monsters written for Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop RPGs. And Making a Monster Extinction was meant to show you how I'm going through the process of mythologizing extinct animals for Dungeons & Dragons. My goal is highly produced and highly edited interviews with experts on the particular animals I'm working with. And I still plan to do episodes like that. I'm working on episodes for the Arux and the Carolina Parakeet. But if I want book of extinction to be everything it can be occasionally the expert i'll be consulting is just me in at least the case of the florida fairy shrimp book of extinction may contain the largest body of extant literature on a given species so i'm willing to claim the title at least insofar as the podcast requires it and as an expert i believe i have a unique point to make about the intersection of conservation and DD and digging up dragon bones The Monster Manual has a hierarchy of bears. Black bear, brown bear, polar bear, and cave bear. The last of which is just the polar bear, but with dark vision. But in true making a monster style, there's way more to it than that. Over the last month, I've been working on Pleistocene megafauna, giant animals gone extinct in the geological epoch previous to the one in which we live. These are the original dire creatures, like dire wolves and, yes, cave bears, the oversized animals who lived before the current geological era. And at first, I thought doing this work would detract from my point— which is the urgent and tragic loss of a mind-boggling amount of biodiversity within your lifetime. And time does create a psychological distance from the problem, so that the extinction of the giant ground sloth or woolly mammoth doesn't cause nearly the level of emotional turmoil as that of the ivory-billed woodpecker. But I think there's another point to be made by embracing that time scale. We don't get good fantasy literature without a world packed with biodiversity— and I can use dragon bones to prove it. From Cyclops to Godzilla to Jaws, giant creatures form the backbone of the monster ecosystem. In fact, one of the many meanings of the word monster is huge, because at a certain point, sheer size is enough to recontextualize a human's perceived place in the food chain from predator to prey, or perhaps to paramecium, a creature so comparatively small it is beneath the notice of the food chain entirely. And it's no coincidence that the fiction in Appendix N, the works that inspired Dungeons & Dragons, was largely written against the backdrop of the natural history boom of the late 1800s, when natural historians, fossil collectors, and archaeologists inspired the gentleman explorer archetype that would later be personified in Indiana Jones. In a lot of cases, these gentleman explorers were looking at the fossils of megafauna, We've talked about cyclops skulls in Crete and griffin bones in the Gobi Desert, and although I have heard of objections to those examples, they do illustrate the turn of natural history from fantasy to fact to extinction, and dragon bones are the fulcrum on which it happened. 
In the 16 and 1700s, the bones of cave bears were discovered in droves in caves all over Europe. The scientific discourse of the day argued over whether they belonged to apes, canids, felids, or even dragons or unicorns. And as they were drawn in the historical journals of the time, they were often called, in all seriousness, dragon bones. Some examples are De Draconum Carpathicorum Cavernus by P.J. Hayne from 1672 and Antra Draconum Liptevensis by F. Bruckman from 1739. It wasn't until 1794 that German anatomist Johann Christian Rosenmuller became the first to publish a description of the creature under the name Ursus Spileus, or cave bear, from a skull found in the Galen Ruith Caves in Bavaria. Large deposits of cave bear bones are typically found together, leading to speculation as to whether they lodged in the caves year-round, lived and died in family groups, or simply found themselves dying in the same places over tens of thousands of years. Rosenmuller, however, still ascribed a certain mythicality to the species. He wrote, If a hundred thousand dog skulls found in an Egyptian cave prove that these animals were considered sacred, I see nothing implausible in the idea that our bare bones were similarly brought into the caves by human hands, and that they should be considered the remnants or proof of a pagan reverence. With Rosenmuller and others like him, dragon fell away to be replaced by bear. Woolly mammoths followed a similar trajectory. The first mastodon bones to be discovered, or at least the first to be subjected to modern scientific scrutiny, were discovered along the Ohio River in 1739. Georges Cuvier created his idea of espèce perdue, or lost species, in 1796, largely as a result of decades of struggle by the scientific community in Europe to resolve those bones with living species. This was the first example of extinction as a scientific idea and the beginning of paleontology. Barely a generation later, Darwin discovered the bones of megafauna like Macrachenia, or the so-called Long Llama. Look it up, it's ridiculous. During the voyage of the Beagle in 1834. Alfred Russell Wallace wrote in 1837 that we live in a zoologically impoverished world from which all of the hugest and fiercest and strangest forms of life have recently disappeared. And this is the backdrop against which the fantasy we're enjoying in D&D was created. H.P. Lovecraft's invention of cosmic horror started with his short story Dagon in 1910 when the concept of time on a geological scale made mankind feel smaller and more insignificant than he ever had. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in 1937, in the wake of World War II, when much of Europe had been ground to mud under tank treads, and his fantasy pictured a spiraling descent to a less awesome, less cool, less magical world. Middle Earth, he supposed, was our Earth, but already ancient and forgotten before the founding of Rome, and Middle Earth itself was a pallid echo of far more magical ages past. This was a genre suffused with nostalgia. And starting in 1974, D&D coded the work of these fantasy authors into its game mechanics, filling ancient caves and tombs and ruins with dinosaurs, cave bears, dire wolves, and dragons, the echoes of an older, wilder world. In other words, extinction is part of the DNA of D&D. And if we're living through the sixth mass extinction as author Elizabeth Colbert and others have posited, then what kind of fantasy are we setting up to tell? Is this Middle-earth? Are we the elves passing away into the West? And what kind of world are we leaving behind? Those are the central questions behind the Extinction. 
Thank you for listening to Making a Monster Extinction. All of the stories I've told are being added to Book of Extinction, which is coming to Kickstarter in November of this year. We're up to 65 pages, and it's starting to look like a real book now. But if you want to get your hands on the first three monsters, the thylacine, the great auk, and the passenger pigeon, you can get them right now by going to scintilla.studio slash extinction. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash extinction. There you can download a PDF preview, including those first three monsters. And here's the cool part. You can pay what you want for it, and everything that we earn from this preview will go to support the Center for Biological Diversity, a legal and media advocacy organization working on behalf of endangered species and wild places in America and worldwide. Extinction can be a tragic and maudlin topic, but I believe that the best antidote to despair is action. And I wanted to give you a way to do that. The conservationists and advocates at the center are real-life solar punks, and they're very inspiring to me. And you might hear their voices on future episodes of Making a Monster Extinction. So follow this podcast wherever you happen to be listening. And do me a favor, rate and review the podcast if you've got a second or two. It seems like a small thing, but it really does help new listeners discover the show, helps this project grow, and gives it the momentum to bring more of these stories into your ears every week. If you've listened this far, then you can hit that little heart icon on the Spotify player. It's a real gift to me and the creators I do intend to feature. I'll be back next week with a new extinction story, and as soon as I can, I'll be bringing you a full episode on the Aurochs and the Carolina parakeets. So look forward to those, and I will see you next week. <laughs>